Chapter 5 of Impressions of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 5 A Too Deferential Man. A little unpremeditated insincerity must be indulged under the stress of social intercourse. The talk of even an honest man must often represent merely his wish to be inoffensive or agreeable, rather than his genuine opinion or feeling on the matter at hand. His thought, if uttered, might be wounding, or he has not the ability to utter it with exactness and snatches at a loose paraphrase, or he has really no genuine thought on the question and is driven to fill up the vacancy by borrowing the remarks in vogue. These are the winds and currents we have all to steer amongst, and they are often too strong for our truthfulness or our wit. Let us not bear too hardly on each other for this common incidental frailty, or think that we rise superior to it by dropping all considerateness and deference. But there are studious, deliberate forms of insincerity which it is fair to be impatient with. Hinces, for example. From his name you might suppose him to be German, in fact, his family is Alsatian, but he has been settled in England for more than one generation. He is the superlatively deferential man, and walks about with murmured wonder at the wisdom and discernment of everybody who talks to him. He cultivates the low-toned tete-a-tete, keeping his hat carefully in his hand and often stroking it while he smiles with downcast eyes as if to relieve his feelings under the pressure of the remarkable conversation which it is his honour to enjoy at the present moment. I confess to some rage on hearing him yesterday, talking to Felicia, who was certainly a clever woman, and without any unusual desire to show her cleverness, occasionally says something of her own, or makes an allusion which is not quite common. Still, it must happen to her as to every one else to speak on many subjects on which the best things were said long ago, and in conversation with a person who has been newly introduced, those well-worn themes naturally recur as a further development of salutations and preliminary media of understanding, such as pipes, chocolates, or mastic-chewing, which serve to confirm the impression that our new acquaintance is on a civilized footing and has enough regard for formulas to save us from shocking outbursts of individualism, to which we are always exposed with the tamest bear or baboon. Considered purely as a matter of information, it cannot any longer be important for us to learn that a British subject included in the last census holds Shakespeare to be supreme in the presentation of character. Still, it is as admissible for any one to make this statement about himself as to rub his hands and tell you that the air is brisk, if only he will let it fall as a matter of course with a parenthetic lightness and not announce his adhesion to a commonplace with an emphatic insistence as if it were proof of singular insight. We mortals should chiefly like to talk to each other out of good will and fellowship not for the sake of hearing revelations or being stimulated by witticisms, and I have usually found that it is the rather dull person who appears to be disgusted with his contemporaries because they are not always strikingly original, and to satisfy whom the party at a country house should have included the prophet Isaiah, Plato, 
Francis Bacon, and Voltaire. There is always your heaviest bore who is astonished at the tameness of modern celebrities, naturally, for a little of his company has reduced them to a state of flaccid fatigue. It is right and meet that there should be an abundant utterance of good sound commonplaces. Part of an agreeable talker's charm is that he lets them fall continuously with no more than their due emphasis. Giving a pleasant voice to what we are well assured of makes a sort of wholesome air for a more special and dubious remark to move in. Hence it seemed to me far from unbecoming in Felicia that in her first dialogue with Hinsa, previously quite a stranger to her, her observations were those of an ordinarily refined and well-educated woman on standard subjects and might have been printed in a manual of polite topics and creditable opinions. She had no desire to astonish a man of whom she had heard nothing particular. It was all the more exasperating to see and hear Hintz's reception of her well-bred conformities. Felicia's acquaintances know her as the suitable wife of a distinguished man, a sensible, vivacious, kindly-disposed woman, helping her husband with graceful apologies, written and spoken, and making her receptions agreeable to all comers. But you would have imagined that Hinsach had been prepared by general report to regard this introduction to her as an opportunity comparable to an audience of the Delphic Sibyl. When she had delivered herself on the changes in Italian travel, on the difficulty of reading Ariosto in these busy times, on the want of equilibrium in French political affairs, and on the preeminence of German music, he would know what to think. Felicia was evidently embarrassed by his reverent wonder, and in dread lest she should seem to be playing the oracle, became somewhat confused, stumbling on her answers rather than choosing them. But this made no difference to Hintz's rapt attention and subdued eagerness of inquiry. He continued to put large questions, bending his head slightly, that his eyes might be a little lifted in awaiting her reply. What, may I ask, is your opinion as to the state of art in England? Oh, said Felicia, with a light deprecatory laugh, I think it suffers from two diseases, bad taste in the patrons and want of inspiration in the artists. That is true indeed, said Hinsa in an undertone of deep conviction. You have put your finger with strict accuracy on the cause of decline. To a cultivated taste like yours, this must be particularly painful. I did not say there was actual decline, said Felicia, with a touch of brusquerie. I don't set myself up as that great personage whom nothing can please. Well, that would be too severe a misfortune for others, says my complimentary ape. You approve, perhaps, of Rosemary's Babes in the Woods as something fresh and naive in sculpture? Uh, I think it enchanting. Oh, does he know that? Or will you permit me to tell him? Heaven forbid! It would be an impertinence in me to praise a work of his, to pronounce on its quality, and that I happen to like it can be of no consequence to him. Here was an occasion for Hinsa to smile down on his hat and stroke it, Felicia's ignorance that her praise was inestimable being peculiarly noteworthy to an observer of mankind. Presently 
he was quite sure that her favourite author was Shakespeare, and wished to know what she thought of Hamlet's madness. When she had quoted Wilhelm Meister on this point, and had afterward testified that Lear was beyond adequate presentation, that Julius Caesar was an effective acting play, and that a poet may know a good deal about human nature while knowing little of geography. Hintze appeared so impressed with the plenitude of these revelations that he recapitulated them, weaving them together with threads of compliment. As you very justly observed, and it is most true as you say, and it were well if others noted what you have remarked. Some listeners, incautious in their epithets, would have called Hintze an ass. For my part, I would never insult that intelligent and unpretending animal, who no doubt brays with perfect simplicity and substantial meaning to those acquainted with his idiom, and if he feigns more submission than he feels, has weighty reasons for doing so. I would never, I say, insult that historic and ill-appreciated animal, the ass, by giving his name to a man whose continuous pretense is so shallow in its motive so unexcused by any sharp appetite as those of Hintz's. But perhaps you would say that this adulatory manner was originally adopted under strong promptings of self-interest, and that his absurdly overacted deference to persons from whom he expects no patronage is the unreflecting persistence of habit, just as those who live with the deaf will shout to everyone else and you might indeed imagine that in talking to Tuplian, who has considerable interest at his disposal, Hintze had a desired appointment in mind. Tulpian is appealed to on innumerable subjects, and if he is unwilling to express himself on any of them, says so with instructive copiousness. He is much listened to, and his utterances are registered and reported with more or less exactitude, but I think he has no other listener who comports himself as Hintze does, who, figuratively speaking, carries about a small spoon, ready to pick up any dusty crumb of opinion that the eloquent man may have let drop. Tulpian, with reverence be it said, has some rather absurd notions, such as a mind of large discourse often finds room for. They slip about amongst his higher conceptions and multitudinous acquirements like disreputable characters at a national celebration in some vast cathedral, where to the ardent soul all is glorified by rainbow light and grand associations. Any vulgar detective knows them for what they are, but Hintze is especially fervid in his desire to hear Tulpian dilate on his crotchets and is rather troublesome to bystanders in asking them whether they have read the various fugitive writings in which these crotchets have been published. If an expert is explaining some matter on which you desire to know the evidence, Hintze teases you with Tulpian's guesses and asks the expert what he thinks of them. In general, Hintze delights in the citation of others' opinions, and would hardly remark that the sun shone without an air of respectful of appeal or fervid adhesion. The Iliad, one sees, would impress him little if it were not for what Mr. Fugelman has said about it, and if you mention an image or sentiment in Chaucer, he seems not to heed the bearing of your reference, but immediately tells you that Mr. Hoteboy too regards Chaucer as a poet of the first author, and he is delighted to find that two such judges as you and Hoteboy are at one. 
What is the reason of all this subdued ecstasy, moving about hat in hand with well-dressed hair and attitudes of unimpeachable correctness? Some persons conscious of sagacity decide at once that Hinsa knows what he is about in flattering Tulpian, and has a carefully appraised end to serve, though they may not see it. They are misled by the common mistake of supposing that men's behavior, whether habitual or occasional, is chiefly determined by a distinctly conceived motive, a definite object to be gained or a definite evil to be avoided. Truth is that the primitive wants of nature once tolerably satisfied, the majority of mankind, even in a civilized life full of solicitations, are with difficulty aroused to the distinct conception of an object toward which they will direct their actions with careful adaptation, and it is yet rarer to find one who can persist in the systematic pursuit of such an end. Few lives are shaped, few characters formed by the contemplation of definite consequences seen from a distance and made the goal of continuous effort or the beacon of a constantly avoided danger. Such control by foresight, such vivid picturing and practical logic, are the distinction of an exceptionally strong nature. But society is chiefly made up of human beings whose daily acts are all performed either in unreflecting obedience to custom and routine, or from immediate promptings of thought or feeling to execute an immediate purpose. They pay their poor rates, give their vote in affairs political or parochial, wear a certain amount of starch, hinder boys from tormenting the helpless, and spend money on tedious observances called pleasures, without mentally adjusting these practices to their own well-understood interest, or to the general ultimate welfare of the human race. And when they fall into ungraceful compliment, excessive smiling, or other luckless efforts of complacent behavior, these are but the tricks or habits gradually formed under the successive promptings of a wish to be agreeable, stimulated day by day without any widening resources for gratifying the wish. It does not in the least follow that they are seeking by studied hypocrisy to get something for themselves. And so with Hintz's deferential bearing, his complimentary parentheses and worshipful tones, which seem to some like the overacting of a part in a comedy, he expects no appointment or other appreciable gain through Tulpian's favor. He has no doubleness toward Felicia. There is no sneering or backbiting obverse to his ecstatic admiration. He is very well off in the world and cherishes no unsatisfied ambition that could feed design and direct flattery. As you perceive, he has had the education and other advantages of a gentleman without being conscious of marked result, and such as a decided preference for any particular ideas or functions, his mind is furnished as hotels are, with everything for occasional and transient use. But one cannot be an Englishman and gentleman in general. It is in the nature of things that one must have an individuality, though it may be of an often repeated type. As Hinsa in growing to maturity had grown into a particular form and expression of person, so he necessarily gathered a manner and frame of speech which made him additionally recognizable. His nature is not tuned to the pitch of a genuine, direct admiration only to an attitudinizing deference which does not fatigue itself with the formation of real judgments. 
all human achievement must be wrought down to this spoon-meat, this mixture of other persons' washy opinions, and his own flux of reverence for what is third-hand, before Hintzer can find a relish for it. He has no more leading characteristic than the desire to stand well with those who are justly distinguished. He has no base admirations, and you may know by his entire presentation of himself, from the management of his hat to the angle at which he keeps his right foot, that he aspires to correctness. Desiring to behave becomingly and also to make a figure in dialogue, he is only like the bad artist whose picture is a failure. We may pity these ill-gifted strivers, but not pretend that their works are pleasant to behold. A man is bound to know something of his own weight and muscular dexterity, and the puny athlete is called foolish before he is seen to be thrown. Hintze has not the stuff in him to be at once agreeably conversational and sincere, and he has got himself up to be at all events agreeably conversational. Notwithstanding this deliberateness of intention in his talk, he is unconscious of falsity, for he has not enough of deep and lasting impression to find a contrast or diversity between his words and his thoughts. He is not fairly to be called a hypocrite, but I have already confessed to the more exasperation at his make-believe reverence, because it has no deep hunger to excuse it. End of chapter 5 of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot